Net-A-Porte presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 2, Changemakers. After a year like no other, celebrating changemakers has never been more relevant. I'm Sarah Bailey, and in this episode, I am thrilled to be talking to Lisa Joy, the trailblazing writer, director, and producer who co-created the cult sci-fi series Westworld for HBO. And I'm excited to say that her eagerly awaited feature film directorial debut, Reminiscence, starring her long-term collaborator Tandy Newton, is released later this year. Brought up in New Jersey by her British dad and her Taiwanese mom, Lisa doggedly pursued her dream to be a screenwriter, making an audacious leap away from her first career incarnation as a management consultant and lawyer. From the stability of a rising corporate career to the fevered, raw competitiveness of the Hollywood writer's room, where female writers are still notoriously rare, it was a bold, gutsy move. It was 2007 when she quit the day job to become a writer on the rule-breaking mystery comedy Pushing Daisies. In 2013, together with her husband Jonathan Nolan, she began creating the extraordinary series Westworld. Emmy nominated many times over and now about to go into its fourth season. She has said of the stories of female fortitude and rebellion depicted in the show that she has poured 30-plus years of her experience of being a woman into their creation. It's no wonder those characters blaze so brightly on screen and that their narratives touch us to our core. Welcome, Lisa Joy. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. It's wonderful to be here and talking to you, Sarah. There are so many great moments to talk about in your career, but I guess we should start with those early years. You, the aspiring lawyer studying hard at the bar, working at McKinsey, and then you get a break to join the writing team for ABC TV series Pushing Daisies. Can you take us back to that time? You'd got so far in your studies and your ambition to be a lawyer, and yet you're burning up the midnight oil teaching yourself to screenwrite. Can you paint a picture of that time for us? Yeah, I always loved writing, but there are some jobs that just seem impractical. <laughs> and and as though you'll just be this destitute mad lady wandering the streets one day if if you're actually crazy enough to go for them. And and they feel all the more far away when you're not raised in that environment. You know, I'm first generation American. It's my mom who's Taiwanese and my father who's British, but they came here um, in their 20s. And the focus of our lives wasn't so much getting creative fulfillment so much as can we, you know, afford the mortgage this month? And how are we going to get good health care? And how will you have stable lives in this country where when you're first generation, it really does feel like you're a frontiers person in a way, much like in Westworld. You're trying to figure out this landscape that's already settled and has its own mores and rules. And my family very much prized education and stability. So it was either doctor or lawyer. And I felt lawyer was better suited to my skills. And so I was I was happy to follow that path. And to keep writing as something I did for myself. It was almost like 
I was ashamed to admit that I had such a frivolous dream. It feels like hubris to think that anything that you yourself write might be might be at all interesting to anybody else. I didn't want to presume that at all. And it was my husband, Jonah, who one day suggested that I try my hand at screenwriting because there is a path to making it not only an avocation, but a vocation, a much more clear path than, say, poetry writing, which was uh, what I was focused on at the time. And he bought me the software with literally his last penny. Actually, a little more than his last penny. He couldn't afford it, so I had to pay the last $10 for it. Those were our salad days. And while I was at law school, I I wrote, I, I practiced the craft of screenwriting. And when I graduated, I had a job at McKinsey that was going to pay for law school for me, which was quite important because law school is expensive. And I still had so much debt from college. And so while studying for the bar, I gave myself a deadline to also write an actual proper TV script, uh, my first TV script. Uh, It was a masochistic uh, period of multitasking because the bar, especially the California bar, is just a real pain. But I submitted the script thinking perhaps I could be a writer's assistant and was lucky enough that I had one interview and that was the only interview I could get. I knew no one else in TV. And I got the job. And so I found myself suddenly in this situation where I was in San Francisco working in, I worked in the field of high tech And I was with a client, and I was giving a presentation, and I got this call. And I took the call, and they said, you know, you're you're invited to join the staff of Pushing Daisies. And it was utterly, utterly shocking to me. And I basically said, okay, well, I wrap up this study in about a month, and I want to do the responsible thing and, you know, finish here. And they said, well, if you aren't on a plane and in the room by tomorrow, we're giving the job to someone else. And for someone who's quite risk-averse, It was a truly flabbergasting situation to be in because, you know, I think as a first generation and not coming from wealth, you feel this obligation not only to be stable and to be able to support yourself, but to be able to support family too. And it just seemed the height of selfishness to take a chance like that and risk not only your own well-being, but other people's as well. But I knew that this chance probably wouldn't come again, that it was now or never. And it was a reduced chance because I'd actually gotten the job, which is somewhat unheard of. You know, uh, normally it's years of indentured servitude as you work your way up the ranks. And so I, I leapt. I leapt for it, and it's, it changed my life. So from the bar to the writer's room, what was that transition like? especially with a non-Hollywood background in terms of training, to find yourself as one of the only women in the room and one of the only women from a minority background? I think I went into the experience uh, completely naive in some ways. I thought that it was going to be like Hogwarts Academy for artsy nerds, you know, and we would all just sort of sit there and mind meld. And what I didn't realize is that you know, writers' rooms in Hollywood, it it is also a business and there are hierarchies and rules. And those rules can change depending on the show you're on or the culture of that show. And so I go into this room and there are whiteboards everywhere and people are pitching ideas. And all I can think is, oh, okay, so I have to keep up and pitch ideas too. And, you know, I would try to contribute as much as I could. 
And then one day somebody on staff sort of took me aside. And I think this just represented this individual's views. Um, And she said, you know, you're a diversity hire. And so no one really expects you to say anything or talk. And I was very surprised because, A, I I hadn't known I was a diversity hire, which is this program where uh, studios can sometimes subsidize a writer on staff if they're a minority. And no one had told me I was a diversity hire. And so I started to wonder if I was supposed to be abiding by some kind of different rule set. And it really made me, I think so much of anybody's career in life is a matter of managing self-doubt, especially in the face of a culture in which you're not used to seeing people like yourself in the roles that you long to be in. And if there is no example of me in this role, then perhaps I should become that example. And that, however, is a very difficult place to get to. And I think everybody always feels a bit like a fraud, no matter what they do. And so I I was very full of self-doubt, and, and I hadn't known that experience. But I also had these ideas. And in a way, the ideas themselves are what saved me because my ideas and these kind of creative thoughts that I have live in a world in a way outside of me and my sense of self. You know, it's it's like listening to voices of characters in another room. And part of the reason why I love writing is because you don't have to be you when you're thinking about a story. You can cast aside all the fears you have of yourself, all the fears and vulnerabilities, and you can slip into the skin of other characters and you can give them the love and attention that sometimes you wish the world would bestow upon you. And it's this incredible gift to be able to explore oneself and one's world through fiction. It teaches you, I think, a lot about yourself and, you know, also helps the writing. But I was so used to doing that as a, as a sort of muscle memory, an instinctive thing, that even if I struggled with how much I should say, I couldn't stop the creative thoughts from whirling around in my head. That is such a beautiful description of writing and the empowerment of writing as a woman. So you've gone on to have phenomenal success as a woman in science fiction writing. And that's such an overwhelmingly male space. I mean, you only have to look at the crowds at Comic-Con. What have been the major roadblocks for you to overcome in that genre? First of all, one of the biggest roadblocks wasn't even in genre so much as in action, right? I very much enjoy writing and directing action. I grew up watching, uh, you know, kung fu films in Taiwan. And, you know, I have some background as a dancer and in martial arts. And when I think of plots that involve action, I plot the action as I do a dialogue scene or an emotional scene. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has to have a unique facet to it, and it has to be visually appealing. And I would think about all these things. But nobody really expects a female writer to want to do these giant set pieces and want to do these giant action scenes to really have desire for that. People kept asking me if I wanted to do, you know, romantic comedies or things about fairies or pixies. And, you know, I I have nothing against those movies. Do you know what I mean? It's just not my forte. And so my second job on a show called Burn Notice had a lot of action-heavy production And 
It was a very huge boys club where I, I had a hard time there. But what I did get from it was that it didn't have to be a boys club, that I liked action and I could be really good at it. And I was going to try to find a way where in a safe environment where I would be heard, I could let that passion of mine fly. And when I left that job, I became pregnant and therefore unstaffable. Nobody wanted to hire a pregnant woman for a writer's room. And it was just assumed I'd sort of retired. (laughs) So it was during that time when I was very ill at home uh, with morning sickness. And I, I just remember I would sit on the couch alone in the dark, puking in a bucket while cuddling my dog. And I was thinking, this can't be the end. It surely can't be the end of it. And for the first time in my career, I wasn't there to write for anyone else. No one would hire me. And so I decided to write for myself. And I wrote something in solely my own voice. And it was an extreme luxury to be able to do that. And it became this film reminiscence that I, you know, nobody was waiting for it. Nobody commissioned me to write a film. And so I sold it on the open market, hoping that somebody would want to pick it up. And I remember before selling it, putting it on the open market, thinking if I should change my name to something more uh, androgynous for the purposes of this, because it is a movie that is a futuristic noir that stars a male lead and is very much an examination of the male gaze. But from the outside, I knew people would read it as, this is a great story for a man who goes around and does a lot of cool action. And I thought, if they think it comes from me, they'll discount how good it can be because they'll immediately think, well, how could a woman write a man convincingly? In the end, I decided to release it under my own name. And luckily, happily, it started this big bidding war and really was a great way to kick it off by getting validated through the market. And I truly think that had I shopped it around to people, as afterwards I had a bunch of meetings, but I was heavily pregnant. I was like nine months pregnant. And people were shocked that this giant sweating woman would come in. And, and it was very hard to be taken seriously. And I still kept getting asked if I wanted to do, you know, rom-coms and such, despite the fact that the material that I had, sub, you know, I had become known for was the opposite of that. Men aren't afraid, if they are not great men, to show you the worst sides of themselves in every way because the system protects them and there's this kind of group mentality. And you see tough stuff. And, you know, my agency at the time, you know, just they said to me, if you complain or do anything, there's no recourse. You won't get hired. And, you know, it was before Me Too and all that stuff, so it never even occurred to me to complain. I would have been in big trouble my career. And so I kind of just tried to be very resilient and tried to keep some sense of grace and dignity intact um, and not to lose, hopefully, too much confidence in my writing, which, you know, the confidence was really getting eroded away. And... I go home and regularly cry. (laughs) But you've given me something that you don't understand you've given me. And I have seen your true face, the unfiltered one that you feel free to use on me because I am less than nothing to you. And in that truth, 
you've given me something to write about. And from that, Westworld was born. It's amazing to hear you say that. And we, I, we talked in the introduction about that quote you've given before about 30 plus years of being a woman being poured into the female characters of Westworld and their fortitude and their ability to fight back. Um, you must feel so passionate about them. The idea of robots in a Western theme park, ordinarily it's two things that I'm not that into, Westerns and um, very, very far-flung futurism. But all of a sudden, I saw a way to make a myth that told the truth about my experiences, uh, to tell the truth but tell it slant, as it were. I, I realized that the reason why a lot of Westerns didn't appeal to me was because the characters who might have some appeal to me were often relegated to sidelined tropes. You know, the good damsel who just sighs and faints and waves goodbye to the strapping man, or the brothel owner who's bad but can sling back booze and is kind of fun, you know. And I thought, especially coming off of some of the environments where I had been working, which were so male-dominated and where it was so hard to be taken seriously, I thought, well, these women aren't taken seriously. And what if I told this story through their lens? Getting to work with Tandy and Evan, watching those brave, brilliant, magnificent talents embody those characters, characters that have some of my personal experience in them and also some of theirs. Those characters become shared souls between a writer and a performer, you know? And both of those women have done such great things, not just on the screen, but in life. I want to be clear, I have had amazing, amazing collaborators, men and women, but I've also had some hard stuff, like everybody. The only way that I could not be embittered by it or feel like a victim, which I think are very dangerous loops to go down, I did not want to be a prisoner to the world that they had created and put me in. I wanted to be free. And I used my writing to free myself and to create a world full of collaborators that I love and respect and learn from so that we could all have the kind of experience that creatively I'd long dreamt of having. I'd love to talk some more about reminiscence. And you painted an amazingly evocative um, picture of you writing that script when, you know, you were kind of confined to your couch. But where did the idea for that story come from? I'm, I'm really curious to know how, as a writer, you nurture an idea. The idea for it came actually in Huddersfield. <laughs> I was at this moment in my life when I was trying to get pregnant, and it was very difficult for me. And my grandfather died at that time. And I remember flying to England and trying to help clean up his, his belongings, go through his stuff, and, and help my grandmother. You know, they have this tiny place in Slaithwaite, which they call their Slawit. And it's this, you know, it's a string of little stone homes in, um, in the mountains and the hills. And they're quite modest, um, but nice. And my grandfather's house had this plaque on it, more befitting in that kind of guilt grandeur, some kind of manner. You know, it felt ill-placed on this little modest stone house. And the plaque read Sookie Lin. And that was the name of the house. And I'd always wondered why is this house called Sookie Lin? And he'd, he'd never really told me. 
And then as I was going through his belongings, I found this very old picture. It must have been decades, decades old um, from when he was much, much younger and traveling as part of the United Nations of this very pretty woman in a black and white, you know, photo. And on the back, it was just labeled Suki Lin. And it made me think about all the worlds that we have inside us, you know, all those experiences in life that we have that we lose to time, but that leave their mark on us. You know, my grandfather was married to my grandmother until, you know, until the end for both of them. Uh, they lived so far away from wherever Suki Lin was, which was somewhere in Asia. And yet some part of who this woman was had lingered with him, had caused him to name his house after her. I cannot guess at the nature of their relationship. I mean, I suppose I could guess, but there's no way to know what it was. That is a secret that belongs to my grandfather and to Suki Lin, whoever she is. But my grandfather's gone now, and she might be too. And that whole story, that whole world, whatever it was, has vanished because it only ever existed in the minds of two people. And it made me think about the story of an individual who peddles in memory, who in the, in the future could find a way to access memories and have people fully experience them again. Uh, it was something I learned about in a science class once, that when people are getting brain surgery, they have to stay conscious. And when different parts of their brains are stimulated, they sometimes have this rush of memory or sensation. And I thought, what if all of those moments are still locked in our brain somewhere and with the right prodding, like a PI of the mind, could take us there and put us back in that moment and we could relive them fully again in every way? What would we revisit? Would it be right to revisit it? And uh, that was the premise of, of Reminiscence. I can't wait to see it. And, and of course, Reminiscence, like many other films in the industry, has been delayed in coming out into the cinemas because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, I mean, how do you see the next few years of cinema recovering, Lisa? It is tricky. Everybody right now is experiencing this huge change in the world, you know, and, and, it, and it teaches us sort of like a, a tsunami, you know, that you can't, you can lay the best foundation you want, but sometimes nature and the world at large just makes other plants, you know. And I made reminiscence to be seen in theaters. The shots were directed that way. Um, the entire mise-en-scene, which is a world half sunken underwater, is meant to envelop you on a scale larger than life. And I do very much hope that if it is safe, people get to see it that way. Because I've seen it on the small screen and on the big screen, and it is better on the big screen. That being said, only if it's safe. You know, I know what I would like in the future, which is I would like community spaces where I see people who are not just the same people I know all the time, day in and day out. And for me, the idea that film and theaters are a way where you go to a theater and it doesn't matter if you're wealthy and married, if you're single and you've saved up all week to do it, you are in a shared space with someone eating the same popcorn and having the same creative moment with something. You know, during COVID, I've spent so much time walking 
taking photos and I tend to just choose a place at random on a map, one I've never been to, not associated necessarily with, you know, any kind of landmark or anything special. I just choose a place, drive there, and walk around with my camera and see what life looks like for other people because it's so easy to get caught in your own loop and to become a victim of your own prejudices if you don't get out there and see the world. Perfectly put. And of course, it, it leads me to my next question, because it feels like now more than ever, it is important to encourage diversity in a powerful industry like the movie industry. And um, how do we do that? I think I am optimistic that that change is happening. And it's happening in a more dramatic way than I could have ever imagined at the start of my own career, which was not that long ago. Seven years ago, this world was very different. And we have a long way to go. But I'm really so impressed by the new voices in our world, by the younger generation, by how fearless they are in a way that I never was in pursuing their own voices and feeling entitled to a place in this world and feeling entitled to think about the big issues like climate change, like sexism, like racism, gender issues. And I'm constantly learning from that dialogue. I'm constantly trying to shed the old skin of my beliefs, which always should evolve for every person. And I think there's this boldness to that generation accompanied by an accessibility in technology that sort of democratizes ways of putting your artwork into the world a little bit. You know, this is one of the ways in which technology can be great. You know, you can film something easier with less money. You can make a beautiful painting and put it online for others to see. You know, the old gatekeepers are gone, and there are new gatekeepers, but it's interesting to see that system change. And, you know, for my part, at Kilter, my production company, I did decide to work with one white guy, but it's because I'm married to him and because he's a great guy. And But the rest of my team is all female minorities and not because they're female minorities, just because they're the best at their jobs. But I do think that to nurturing new talent so that rising people who can't, who aren't necessarily fully ready, who are just in the earliest phases of their career, but to give them and inroads to uh, working and refining their craft so that they can be the next generation of leaders and voices. I think that's really necessary in this industry. Yeah, that's being a role model. You explore so much futurology in Westworld. Your work allows us to fantasize and catastrophize about the future and the future of humanity and technology. What are you hopeful about and what do you fear? What I fear is the erosion of scientific truth through the misuse of technology. And I also fear the erosion of human connection through the misapplication of technology, the over-reliance upon it. I do think that as human beings, we are actually organic creatures. And there are some things that we really need. You know, like if you don't see the sun for a long time, it's easy to get depressed. If you don't eat healthy, you get sick. If you don't get some exercise, you can start to feel low, you know. And I'm, I'm not good at any of these things, right? But I do know that if I just sit in an office in the dark all day, teleconferencing or watching stuff, that it's not great for my mood. You know, I'm not saying I collapse entirely, but I'm saying humans do better when we remember 
that we are creatures. We are living creatures, and there are certain things that are good for us, you know? And technology cannot replace that. It can add to it in different ways. But you have to take care of the fundamentals. And one of those fundamentals is also human connection. So, you know, for me on a global level, I, I, I worry about the way in which we adapt to technology and the need to create worlds outside of technology that nourishes. Uh, so I guess that's both a fear and a hope, you know, because I do think there's a possibility for it. There's just as, just as technology can be used for mass disinformation. On the other hand, it can also allow for educational opportunities to become more democratized. So people who would otherwise not be able to go to college or university, and that is exciting because a more learned society, a wiser, more pluralistic society with exposure to, you know, the scientific method and deep pluralistic forms of learning is a better society, I, I truly believe. Looking back over the last 12 months on a personal level, what has given you solace? What has given you joy? What has got you through? Oh, I have turned essentially into a teenage boy. So I was editing my film remotely for a long time. And so it gave a sense of purpose and order to the days. Once I wrapped that, I kind of stared into the deep abyss of, oh my God, the days are my own. <laughs> and What's been nice is it's changed the way that I write. It's changed the way that I work. I've realized that I like having a bit of time to myself, which was something I never allowed myself to do after having kids, right? You always feel guilty about not spending every moment you're not at work with your children. You feel bad if you don't. And this has allowed me so much time that I've taken some time to myself just to, you know, go to the beach by myself and think by myself. And I find that understanding that it's okay to have those needs for solitude and contemplation, I try to let myself off the hook as a mom and not say, you're being selfish, and just say, you're doing something that nourishes you that will help you be a better, kind of more present parent. And my writing has become much more organic and less pre-plotted, and I think has it's, it's interesting uh, to, to feel it evolving in that way. And at the same time, I have become a crazy hobby person. So I learned the guitar, which was something I always wanted to do. I've started whittling, but I'm terrible at it. <laughs> it's just very dangerous to me and anybody nearby when I have my whittling kit on hand. And, you know, hiking, doing stuff with nature that as a Jersey girl, I'm much more used to like the turnpike and malls. So I never really thought I was one for nature, as odd as that may sound. And suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, looking at the waves in the ocean is kind of cool. And uh, we've taken the kids on the, on the road a lot in a little airstream and tried to get them, you know, in nature, tried to allow them to see the world a little bit. And, uh, and that's been good for all of us to have that time together. And in the months to come, what next? What are your aims and hopes for 2021? Uh, well, I have a couple TV projects coming out with Kilter and my husband that I hope to keep working on. I got to get Westworld's next season in shape with the team. Reminiscence will be coming out on Labor Day. And so I imagine there's going to be press and marketing and, and, and things like that to do, which... I'm excited for because I want to support the film and my collaborators, Hugh Jackman, Tandy Newton, Rebecca Ferguson, Cliff Curtis, Daniel Wu. They are just great people and we have so much fun together. And so I think we all are looking forward to sharing what we made and, and hoping, you know, some people enjoy it. <laughs> 
Oh, Lisa, my last question. Who are the young changemakers who inspire you? Who are the other incredible young voices who are shaping our world for the better? That is a great question. There's so many, you know, Amanda Gorman is amazing. There's, you know, there's so many new voices whose names people know because they've gotten traction. And the thing that I like to do, mm-hmm. I have a little Instagram account. I just I just realized what Instagram is. And I um I surf for kind of art and poetry. And I just, I make that my focus. Uh, I don't do news or socialization on social media. I simply look for art and poetry and film stuff. And in doing that, I've stumbled across a bunch of different new graphic artists and visual artists. And, you know, people don't necessarily know their names yet, but I'm seeing the work that they're doing and I'm so excited for it. And it seems so wise to me that I'm, I'm really excited that they're the awareness of them will start to start to grow. But I do I do look at them every day and find endless inspiration from it. Oh, Lisa, it has been absolutely fabulous talking to you today. Thank you so much for being on our Changemakers oh, podcast. Oh, no, thank you. It's been wonderful chatting. And I, I wish I could be in London and we could be having this conversation over oh, tea me or too. something. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Bye. Goodbye. Changemakers was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade, hosted by Sarah Bailey and Alice Casely Hayford, and produced by Laura Hyde. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music and engineering by Alex Port Felix. Enter the code Changemakers at the checkout for 10% off your first Netaporte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. Mm-hmm.